on trail runners how you doing how's your running going how's your training going hey did you get in to the western states 100 if you did raise your hand and i'm guessing not a lot of people are raising their hands right now uh we're just sitting here the week after the western states 100 lottery and 6664 people applied for 264 spots that means that 6400 people that applied for the Western States 100 through the lottery process did not get in. And that's a lot of crying in your Cheerios that's going on this week. And we all feel your pain. We had 48 CTS athletes that applied for the lottery for uh, uh, our entire coaching group. And only one single solitary athlete made it through that process. That's right. 48 athletes we had across our entire coaching group. And only one athlete made it through. Our coaches were definitely commiserating that uh, throughout the week. And so uh, given that it's the week after the lottery, uh, what I wanted to do this week with the CoopCast is really put together a special edition for you, the athletes. I uh, called up uh, Craig Thornley, the race director of the Western States 100, and asked him if he wanted to discuss this topic on air. And he very quickly uh, obliged to that request and brought on none other than the incomparable Tim Twitemeyer, uh, who is a member of the Western States 100 board. And we had a great discussion. We talked about how the lottery kind of came to be today. We talked about the different iterations that that lottery process has gone through. We talked about how the board kind of roll, uh, how the board really looks at their responsibility at being a progressive force in the space of ultra running and trying to satiate the incredible demand that they have on the race itself. We also talk about some of the the financial entanglements that they may or may not have uh, with the qualifying races and really their philosophy behind things such as why they charge uh, the rate that they do to get into the race. It's a re- really reasonable rate. You could you would think that with a su- uh, supply demand uh, proposition that they've got right now, where so many people want to get into the race and they're still fixed to these. 264 lottery spots, not 264 total spots, but 264 lottery spots that they could really charge whatever they want to and they don't. They try to keep it as kind of an every person uh, type of race. It's a, a reasonable proposition for people to afford. We discuss a lot of topics. Uh, we definitely disagree on some points, but I got to say overall, not to spoil the episode, I really appreciate uh, these guys coming on the Coopcast and kind of explaining uh, really what goes into the lottery process and the philosophy behind the current two to the N minus one system that they do have. Uh, so listen for yourself, you guys. You guys can decide if it's fair, if it's not fair, if you're still going to cry in your Cheerios or not. And if you're going to go out and try to keep qualifying for the Western States 100 year after year after year, it's up to you guys. So without any further ado, here we go. Western States 100 race director, Craig Thornley and the incomparable Tim Twitemeyer. So let, let's, um, let's get into some, just some raw stats here first. Okay. We'll start with some easy ones. How many people are going to toe the line for the 2020 Western States 100? 369. 369. Okay. How many people entered the 2020 Western States 100 lottery? 6,664. Okay. And those people represent how many tickets? 
the total ticket count was 27,872 tickets. Perfect. And out of those 6,000 some odd people that entered the lottery, how many people were actually chosen for the lottery and how many weights, weightless spots were chosen? Uh, we chose 264 in the lottery. Um, and then another three from the audience, the lottery within the lottery with the playing card. So that was 267. And then we drew another 50 for the wait list. Perfect. And simple math, how many non-lottery spots are going to be represented in the 2020 field? So spots from the golden ticket races, top 10, things like that. Yeah, this year was 102 automatics. And we'll go through the details of where those automatics will, will, will come from. Mm-hmm. Okay, basic stats there. We got the kind of the ground rules laid out. Next thing. So after, so this is all said and done now. The thing, the last thing that, that will play out are, is obviously the wait list, right? Who comes, who comes into the race from the wait list and who drops out from the field. And then the golden ticket races that remain. And you want to give a quick overview of the golden ticket races for 2020? Uh, yeah, it's uh, uh, Bandera, uh, Black Canyon, uh, Georgia Death Race, Lake Sonoma, and the Canyons. Okay. Perfect. We also have our 10 UTWT spots. Those will be six overseas athletes and then four North American athletes. Normally those are chosen before the lottery, but we were late. Uh, UTWT was late in getting the 2020 schedule done. So we got 30 spots to come in and we also have Gordy. Got he it. hasn't run a plus, far yet. So. Plus Gordy. <laughs> That's, why oh, yeah. <laughs> That's why if you look at the entrance list right now, it's a, it's a 31 short of there's, 369. There's always the Gordy spot that we got to take into account. Okay, perfect. So the lottery is all said and done for all intents and purposes. Yes, it is. Okay. It's done. Are you happy with the way the process has worked out this year? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Tim, do you want to opine on that as well? No, I thought it worked the way we've done it the last uh, several years with, uh, yeah, obviously demand's gone up a lot. We had a lot more tickets to, to, to work with, but, you know, I think the process has worked so far. Obviously the demand is continuing to create a backlog. We'll have to, you know, consider that as we go forward, but yeah, it's so far so good. Okay, perfect. And we'll talk about future iterations of the demand and things like that a little bit later. Last off, Craig. I want to know what your inbox has looked like this week. We're sitting here one week, pretty much one week after the whole lottery draw. So you've had time to like digest however many emails that you've gotten in between the lottery and now. What does it look like? Give us the scope of Craig Thornley's inbox the week after the Western States lottery. Actually, the the inbox is pretty quiet post lottery. You know, before the lottery is when I get all the emails, I get the, I forgot to register or I should have eight tickets instead of one ticket. So post lottery, it's mostly just, um, it's social media is where I get it. Okay. Um, So let me expand that out. What does your (laughs) inbox slash social media queue look like the week after the lottery? Because this is important Um, for the conversation. Yeah, go ahead, Craig. Yeah, it, it's it's been fairly positive. Um, I just posted a bunch of photos today from the lottery, and um, it's it's 
you know, people love seeing the excited folks getting drawn and, and the celebrity drawers that we had this year. Um, I don't know if you, if you watched it, but Tim here got a little verklempt <laughs> when, uh, when Doug Latimer came up to draw names, he hadn't been back to the race since, um, since the early nineties, he was the first guy to get 10 finishes, first runner to get 10 finishes. He was a board president. He was involved in, um, the Granite chief wilderness grandfathered in legislative work. He went back to Washington, DC. Um, he had not been back to the race until, or, or any Western States event until the lottery this past weekend. And he got a standing ovation. He's 82 years old. Um, I posted a, a picture of him and Tim on Instagram today. And it's, it's, it's all positive. Um, and how so, many of those, Tim? you know, there's some, there's some of the, the, the criticisms are, um, not uncommon. It, it's, um, every year there's a lot of people who didn't get selected. So a lot of, a lot of people scrutinize, you know, the automatic spots or why someone with one ticket got in and they had 32 tickets. So there's, there's always that scrutiny after the fact. And, um, it, it tends to have a time decay. So (laughs) if we just wait it out, it just, it just calms down and people sign up for their other races. And if, if, if they're so angry with Western States, they don't, uh, run another qualifier and enter. I'll, I'll probably not even know in, in, in a month or so. It's just, it's going to quiet down. Sure. Absolutely. So. Well, and I, I lived through both ends of that spectrum kind of vicariously as a, as a, as a personal anecdote, one of my frequent running partners here in Colorado Springs got into the lot, got into the race twice in two consecutive years, 2018 and 2019 with one ticket on one ticket ouch he, huh? so he's well, a unicorn about a lottery ticket <laughs> yeah for, so, you know the powerball <laughs> exactly so he, that's exactly what i told him so he's the unicorn but on the other end of the on the other end of the spectrum out of the 48 athletes that we had collectively enter into the lottery in our whole coaching group 48 athletes one single person got selected in the lottery Wow. So we, we've got it on kind of on both ends of the spectrum. So I can, I, I, I feel both the yippee side of it with my training partner the last couple of years and the boohoo side of it, seeing all of our athletes not, not make it through. So I get it. Um, before we get too far into the weeds and we are going to address some of the criticisms and things like that, that, that have, that are, that are inevitable and in anything like this, let's, let's first go through the different iterations of the selection process and the lottery process and kind of how we got to the current iteration of, of, of the Western States lottery as we know it today. Do you want to do that? You mean from the way back from the beginning? Yeah. Way you know, back we, from the beginning. You know, the first lottery was in the early eighties after the, obviously the entrant list, uh, you know, you know, surpassed what they could start with. So then it went to a lottery in the middle 80 years. Uh, and then sooner or later, there were the, they came around. Uh, Norm Klein was the race director in the late 80s, and they came along with what they called the two-time loser rule. So if you went into two lotteries in a row and didn't get picked, then you got to go and um, go on. I got into the race automatically. And, and the demand in the race kind of went up and down a little bit. But, 
that worked really well until we've had kind of our last wave. I was just going back and looking at some numbers here. Um, you know, we were talking about 6,600 plus entrants this year. And if you look back in 2016, that's, we had half that, we had, we had 3,300 new applicants or around 3,300 new applicants, first year applicants this year. That was the entire pool back in 2016. Right. That gives you an idea, kind of the hockey stick effect of the, the number of people that are interested in running the race. Or if you look back in the early 2000s, you know, we might get a 50 or 100 more people in a year. That's, you know, almost rounding error for what we're dealing with. So when, when, the, when the changes came in, we looked at, well, the, you know, the two-time loser thing is going to become unmanageable here when we have much larger volumes of people. We'd have literally a year where we started no one but two-time losers. And so that's when we reconsidered that and thought the, uh, you know, the two to the N minus one was kind of the way to go so that as you consecutively entered the lottery and qualified, you would get more tickets and your probability of going and getting into the race just continue to climb as you continue to apply. So that, that's kind of where we are today. As you know, your first year, you have one ticket, your second year, two, then four, you know, eight, 16, 32. And so it kind of escalates as you continue to apply. Yeah. And there was actually two years after the two time loser rule where um, there was just one additional ticket for every consecutive year. So it was one ticket, two ticket, three ticket, four ticket, five ticket. And that obviously didn't, didn't increase the probabilities of those multi-year folks. So it was in 2015 when we first did the uh, two to the N minus one. Okay. So this is the, so four, if I'm counting and, correctly. And let's see, we did the wait list for the first year. We did the first um, uh, wait list in 2017. So before that, we would we would overbook, just like the airlines. We would pick more than 369, and we were trying to to guess at what the DNS rate was. And we were we were not doing a very good job guessing because the DNS rate was plummeting. So we were getting in sideways with the Forest Service. Um, the wait list obviously allows us to start exactly 369, but I think it also changed the dynamics of, of people um, stepping out of the race, you know, dropping out of the race before the race starts. They now have an, they now have an incentive. Um, somebody else is going to get their spot. It's not going to be wasted. So it, it changed the dynamics a little bit, but, and then uh, last year was the first year we implemented the buys, both the, the pregnancy deferrals and the one-time um, lottery deferral. Okay. One time buy. So this is, so by my count, this is basically the fourth iteration of some type of application and or lottery process that the Western States had. Initially, it's just whoever wants to get in and then it becomes a standard lottery process. And then it becomes a weighted lottery process with one additional ticket for each year. And then it becomes an exponentially weighted lottery process. The N minus one. Yeah, that's correct. Mm -hmm. yep. Correct summary. Okay. So Tim, this might be a, be a little bit of a better question for you. I want to kind of go inside of the board's thoughts every year when you have to cut, when, whenever you have to evaluate, is this the right entry mechanism for the Western States 100? Because you you guys have already demonstrated that you're willing to ebb and flow and change the entry and the lottery process based on the conditions that you guys are seeing. And those conditions are not only just the sheer number of applicants, but as Craig just mentioned, how many people are 
not starting? How many people are withdrawing from the race and do we need to overbook mm-hmm. it and things like that? So Tim, t- like take us into a little bit of, of, of how that works from a board perspective and how you guys have specifically come to the, to the N minus one system that you have right now. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to go back just uh, one other additional, a uh, little bit of analysis there that it kind of came in a few years ago, right? We actually made the qualifier more difficult, right? It used to be finish right. a 50 miler, finish a 50 miler in a certain amount of time. And that was another way to and hopefully to dampen, <laughs> dampen some of the applications, but obviously, you know, the, the ultra running community tends to adapt to whatever we, we do. Right. So then, uh, you know, it kind of maybe ticked down. I think you know, Craig was just pointing out in 2015, the number of applicants went down just a dribble. We went from, uh, it looks like about, you know, 2,800 to 2,700. And then everybody started putting on 100Ks and everybody <laughs> started applying for 100Ks. Now the 50 miler is just a, a distant, uh, you know, history lesson of, uh, you know, what we use to get into the race. And obviously nobody's shying away from the 100K or the 100 miler. But, you know, really, really, uh, you know, the process that we have today seems to be working. It might not be ideal for everyone, but the, I think for most of the people apply, they understand it. They understand how it works. They realize that their their odds are getting in the longer we go. We, we kind of adapt that. I know the one thing that happened this year, by the time we'd finished all the name drawing, we had drawn eight of the nine people that were had been in the lottery for their eighth time. We had one guy, one person, one runner. I don't recall who it was. But we said, okay, rather than put that person in and they can become the first nine-year entrant, we just put them number one on the wait list. So it's almost a guarantee that that one runner is going to get in. So next year, again, we we will only have eight-time um, lottery folks. But we'll see. I, you know, I don't know when we'll revisit this, but it is a fairly, you know, there's some guys that have been around the sport for a long time, like John Mediger. Uh, you know, he's been around ultra running a long time. He has kind of the heartbeat of the sport. He was, you know, the ran ultra running magazine and now Carl's running it. He's on the board. We do get a pretty good read of what people are talking about. We talk to a lot of people on the trail when we're running and we spend a lot of time out here in Auburn, see a lot of visitors talk to them. That's our opportunity to kind of get feedback on anything that it's, it's quite often you might go out with someone from out of town and you're on a run and they might start down to say, you know, going into a dialogue, but you know, giving us suggestions or here's, you know, another thing to consider. And I'd say the vast majority of the time we've already run through all those in our head or been dis- discussed at a board meeting. It's uh, normally uh, something that we address, but uh, I don't know when we'll revisit this again. It really will. It'll really depend on the demand. And, uh, you know, when this particular two to the N minus one strategy, um, you know, runs its course. But, but take, take me into like a little bit more intimate detail about, why and how and like the philosophy behind the current N minus one strategy. I mean, I understand that you have a variety of board members that have their finger on the pulse of the entire ultra running space. And and, and that's absolutely part of it. But are you guys also looking at statistical trends, historical trends of who enters the lottery, the landscape of the qualifiers? I want to know a little bit more like intimate detail behind how that decision-making process actually looks. <laughs> it uh, Without having to read your board minutes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, you, 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 you start off. Yeah, I mean, most of the um, hard work um, 
with this board is is accomplished in committees and there's a there's a small committee that works on on the qualifying races and the two to the n minus one so there there's not and and this is for almost all of the 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 topics that we have the hard, the hard work is done in committee not not at the board meetings where we only meet four times a year um and you know this two to the n minus one while it it definitely rewards perseverance which we think is appropriate for this sport um it 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 hurts people who are not able to run qualifiers every year or if if their time in the sport is going to be short um so we're we're what we could what we would possibly do i don't know if you read ryan whitco's analysis of the lottery that we have posted on our um our geeks only page on the website, but what, what, what we're likely to do or likely to recommend is that instead of two to the N minus one, it would be three to the N minus one or some, some higher multiple, but, but then we have a real practical problem um, printing more tickets for those <laughs> higher in folks. If we still want to have a lottery drawing in front of a live audience where we pull out names, you know, we have a real practical a practical problem um, if we start changing that multiplier too much. So if we let go of that and say, okay, we can go to electronic draw, which the Western States did that for two years in 2012 and 2013. And it was, it was disastrous. Um, the electronic draw was not popular at all. Um, but then it would allow us to do a lot more, um, you know, playing around with the numbers, we could look at Ryan's Ryan's recommendations and run more simulations. But um, it's yeah, it's easy to to say it on paper, but when you when you print it, when you print the tickets and put them in the big barrel, there's twenty seven thousand tickets. Um, I don't know how many. This is the biggest barrel that I could find, and we could probably fit. 75,000 tickets in there when it'd be over stuff. But, you guys, hold you on. I, I got a solution for you. I know an ultra runner that's got access to Big Blue. Blake <laughs> Wood in Los Alamos, New Mexico. He just retired. I'm sure he can still get his way back into Los Alamos National Labs and work his way into Big Blue. And you guys can run all the simulations that you want to. Yeah. Let me, uh, let me throw in some, philosophically. One of the things that we, sh we always talk about in board meetings is being able to mature with the sport and the demand in the sport while carrying on the tradition of the race. And then, you know, some people have come to us, Hey, you know, once you make people run a hundred miler before you get into the race, well, yeah, then everybody go run a hundred mile. I don't think it would tamp down the demand that much, but we'd also like to carry around the tradition of this could be your first hundred mile race. And what a better way to, you know, have maybe your only hundred mile race be Western States. It's kind of a, you know, you get kind of concierge service on the course for, you know, your time out there. But that, that's an example. We've had other things. Well, why don't you just go take, you know, the 369 fastest guys you can find? Well, then then you take the common man out of the sport, right? Most of ultra running today, even still, we have a few fast guys that everyone knows. But probably, you know, 98% of the sport is a bunch of guys that run on the weekend and enjoy being out in the woods. And so you, you get these, uh, you know, dialogues going in the board meeting that are always trying to find 
happy meeting where we kind of meet all those things. And I think right now we, we, you know, we're probably close. When you look at seating and elites, you know, we've got the golden ticket races. We've got the top 10 women and top 10 men from the previous year. the race so we can get a very good uh, collection of fast runners as well as with the lottery and being able to take entries from everywhere in the world your regular guy that lives in uh, italy or some other place can uh, enter the race and get in yeah well so you guys obviously put together a lot of thought into what the current lottery system looks like but one of the things I want to know, and I don't know if you can even know the answer to this, but when you came up with the current with with the current n minus two to the n minus one system, did you ever imagine that in twenty twenty you would have six thousand and six hundred six thousand six hundred and sixty four applicants? Um, I did not. Um, but we were doing a lot of other things. Um, you know, our involvement with UTWT has given us exposure worldwide. And, um, you know, we, we're, we're making these progressive policies with pregnancy deferrals and transgender policies. And I think it's just elevated our, our appeal and status worldwide. Um, so, no, I personally didn't think it would grow at 15% a year, but um, which is higher than, than the – than the whole sport, but I guess looking back, it's probably not surprising based on all the things we've done. The yeah, last and, that, and that's a little decade bit or so. That's yeah, a little the, uh, go ahead, Tim. I was just going to say, um, you know, we we've tried to expand some of the qualifying races so we can cover other places in the world, just so that we can get a good representation of the ultra running as a sport across all the geographies right so that's another thing that kind of you know tends to bring some more people to us you could say the same thing about 100 mile races if you went back and looked at uh you know how many 100 mile races there were in the united states 15 or 20 years ago it's probably a fraction of what it is today that that's another you know kind of evidence that the sport in general is you know spreading from what was a pretty niche small sport back you know 25 years ago and 20 much more of a widespread uh, multinational geographical deal. But but it's fair to say, and, and the, the statistics actually bear this out, it's fair to say that the interest in the Western States 100 has grown at a markedly greater rate as compared to the interest in ultra running or 100-mile races worldwide. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. And, yep. and, and that's a lot. I mean, it's kind of like you almost, you guys are almost in the situation where like you're in the beast of your own making because of all the things, <laughs> Craig, that you just mentioned. Right. I mean, you guys are, you guys are a North star for a lot of problems. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And, and to, to have, but it is, it can be, it can be frustrating as a board trying to keep everyone in the sport accommodated. Absolutely. And I, and I, and that should not be lost in this entire conversation that you guys, because of a lot of the things that you've done, creating an elite field, being progressive across a lot of areas. Craig, you mentioned a couple of them with the pregnancy deferral and the transgender policy. You guys are thinking about these things before a lot of other races, a lot of other races are all of that adds to this aspect that 
the Western States 100 for a lot of ultra runners is their North Star. And as you guys mentioned, it might be the only 100 mile race that they run. And that's a cool thing. But the the downside to that, if there is a downside, is that the interest in that race will always be extremely lopsided compared to ultra runners as a whole. Like you guys are always going to get more attention. You're going to get more influx than, than the entire space sees as a whole. Sees as a whole. Yeah, I'll tell you, I, I, let me just uh, hand like the, a comment that I made to somebody over the weekend pacing at Keller National Marathon. Uh, you know, running in general is a unique sport only because when when you stand at the starting line at Western States or I stand at the starting line of Keller International Marathon or Boston, I am running in the same event at the exact same time as the absolute elites in the sport. And I don't know of another sport where you can say, hey, I want to go, you know, drive in the Indy 500. Or I want to go and, uh, you know, play a baseball game at uh, Fenway Park. You can't do it. It just doesn't happen. But in running, you have this unique opportunity as as your common man runner to be able to, you know, participate alongside, maybe not with, but, you know, certainly in the same environment and the same event as anybody in the sport. And so I think that that is kind of cool to think people come here and they're going to stand next to Jim Walmsley and, uh, you know, Ann Trayson or some of the other uh, people that they, they see in the magazines and, and hear about at places. And, and, it, and it's pretty cool. They run into them at the at, at the race before, you know, the day before you can chat it up. It's kind of a unique uh, sport from that standpoint. Or the race director. Right, stand next to Craig Thornley and line up with him. Uh, yeah, I was just thinking about that, sitting in my hot tub the day after the track. Yeah, they just want to send him emails. They don't really right. want to see him. <laughs> I want, I want one more finish, and I don't know if I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it before I retire or not. But, um, I yeah, I want one more finish. <laughs> okay, can't let, stop at nine. Let, let, let's let's talk about some of the. Uh, some of the non-lottery entrants and kind of bust some myths around there. But before we start out, what is the limiting factor on the field size? And I want you to explain that to everybody just so we can kind of set a box around that. Sure. I gave my lecture before the lottery draw and I'll do it again. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Gordy first ran in 1974 and then it was an independent event separate from the horses in 77. It continued to grow um, independent of the horse race. In 1984, the California Wilderness Act, uh, in, in Granite Chief Wilderness was part of the California Wilderness Act, and four miles of the course uh, were in that wilderness area in general. No organized events are allowed inside wilderness areas, um, but Western states, along with Tevis and three other events, mostly the two big events, Tevis and Western states represented um, all of these events in Washington, D.C. And after four years of uh, legal wrangling, um, we were grandfathered in these five events. Three of them are defunct now. Uh, we were allowed to continue to use the trail through Granite Chief, provided that we didn't have any more starters than we had in 1984. And it just so happened that that was 369 for the run. If it was the year before, it would have been less. It would have been in 200s. Uh, so it was just this, um, it, it seems like a random number, but we're stuck on 369 right now. Um, are we trying to increase that? Yeah, we have been trying. 
we work with our local congressman here, uh, McClintock. We've met with him quite a few times in the last uh, three or four years, but it's not um, it's not easy, and we actually risk being booted out of Granite Chief with um, the problems that Angeles Crest is going through right now. They're coming to us for for help and guidance, and we're in a situation where uh, we have to be careful not to lose our access to Granite Chief too. So, um, yeah, we're stuck at 369, and um, it doesn't look like that's going to change anytime soon unless we change the course to not go through Granite Chief Wilderness. That's a great lead-in. So explain to the listeners out there where on the course is the Granite Chief Wilderness. Yes, so after the first 2,500 foot climb out of Squaw Valley, when you crest the top, you you go downhill, and it's probably a hundred, maybe maybe two maybe 200 meters uh, down the west side of that. You'll enter Granite Chief Wilderness, and just a few years ago, um, there was a big purchase of land that used to be owned by timber companies, uh, 10,000 acres and an additional three miles was added to Granite Chief, additional three miles over course. So at Lion Ridge aid station, which is mile 10 and a half, that's the wilderness boundary. Now that's the Western wilderness boundary west of that or outside of wilderness. Okay. And that will, and that wilderness goes until when? It goes from about three and a half miles to ten and a half miles. Kind of, that's it. So that's that just that one section, three and a half to that 10 one half. section. Yep. Okay. So when people say, "Oh, you should get rid of pacers," you can add more runners. No, pacers don't come in until later. It's all that three and a half to ten and a half mile section. Okay, that's that. That was going to be another one of my add-on questions for the pacers specifically. Mm-hmm. So if it weren't for that one section, let's just wave a magic wand and say that you get you know, some sort of eminent domain that through that one section and it's not part of the granite chief wilderness, what could your field size potentially be? Well, the board has asked me that several times, <laughs> what, what, what the infrastructure could handle. And as you know, you've been here, um, our shuttles up to Robinson flat into the river. They're, they're, they're already pretty, pretty maxed. Oh yeah. So, I think with the current shuttle and aid station, we could probably handle about 450. If we went higher than that, we would significantly change the experience for the crews and the runners. And that may not be good for the race. It may be, it may be, um, it may be okay. People would probably get used to it, but um, if we didn't, have to worry about getting crews and and runners seeing their crews which I, again it's a it's a significant part of the western states experience so it'd be it would be um it would be scary to to make changes like that um but let me let me I, let me let me put a pin I think in that we really could probably quick, do right? like 750 750 runners maybe a thousand runners okay let, let, let me let me pause you just for a second there. But what you're saying is that it's not a permit cap that you have with the exception of the Granite Chief Wilderness. It's more of an infrastructure 
issue that you think would limit the field size? Well, I think it's both. I mean, obviously the permit is limited to 369, so we we can't explore going past that. But when I'm asked that, um, how much we could increase, then I look at the infrastructure and, and the, <clears throat> the roads. <clears throat> pardon me. You know, we go through towns, Forest Hill and Auburn and Michigan Bluff and and cool. So all of those stresses that right now are stresses at 369 runners, they would just be compounded if we increased. And we'd have to carefully evaluate those and, and probably significantly change the crewing experience. And, yeah. And you guys probably remember Leadville had that problem a few years ago where they increased their field size too much from one year to the next and put too big of a strain on the infrastructure of the race itself and the infrastructure of the race being the roads, how the crews get there, the aid stations, aid stations were running out of food and things like that. And, and I, I met with Ken and Mary Lee after that, uh, after that, uh, race and expressed my disappointment to them. And they said, yeah, we screwed up. And so the things that you're mentioning in terms of this theoretical magic wand that we can wave and say, okay, well, what if, what if we could avoid the granite chief wilderness that doesn't automatically give you Liberty to say, we're going to have 3000 runners. You still have constraints that it's real life constraints that you have to deal with to create a reasonable field size, to have a runner experience that is conducive to people just simply enjoying the race and be safe. Absolutely. And, and believe it or not, not everybody likes Western states. You know, some of the townspeople in these smaller places, they don't like the race, Tevis or the run. So we're, we're constantly dealing with those stresses at, at these current levels. Okay. Yeah. And there were a couple of years too in there where we might've had a little bit more leash from the foresters. I think in 1998, when we were doing the 25th running, they gave us a few more slots, just kind of as a 25 year celebration. And you could kind of see in those that I remember Greg mentioning, yeah, you could really notice that with another, let's call it 50 runners or 35 runners, how places like parking at Robinson flat and shuttling people are parking at Michigan bluff. When Craig says, you know, we're running through towns, uh, you know, forest Hill's about as big a town as we run through. And it's about, you know, two or three blocks of, you know, retail and then you're back into the woods again. So, I mean, there's really not any infrastructure, you know, in the first 60 miles of the race, it's just lonely, you know, paved and single, single lane roads out there. So, you know, if anything were to happen where we got, you know, some kind of, you know, natural thing take off, you know, that you, you really have a hard time handling a lot more than a few more runners than we have today. What's the, and, and that's one of the reasons we, we work with the forest service all the time. What's the population of forest Hill when the race <clears throat> isn't there? Oh, it's probably, Oh, I'm guessing it's less than a thousand. And what is it <laughs> during the race day, on a normal, on a normal day? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's no, probably less than a thousand. What there. what about during the race? Oh. Um, uh, <laughs> you have a hard time finding a parking spot <laughs> for, for uh, uh, three quarters I of think, a mile. <laughs> I think we guess that there's 2,500 spectators at, at Western States and, and Forest Hill. You can definitely feel the 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 strain, um, and we, you know, we get the the occasional. Um, 
landowner, like, was it two years ago, so that somebody found a diaper, a used diaper on the corner of Main Street and California Street. And I got the email after the race. They were sure it was from a runner's crew that left this used diaper. Uh, like, uh, um, and, and and then home, uh, business owners, you know, sometimes they're affected. You'd think that the businesses that were selling stuff that crews wanted to buy would be very happy. And I think generally they are, but there are some that, that aren't happy with all the, all the traffic and, and, uh, and that's the case. With any, that's the case with any event. That's the case with any. Event. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let, let's pivot a little bit and talk about the landscape of qualifier races. Cause that's another aspect of having Western States be so popular and have athletes, continue to enter the lottery year after year after year, they have to keep their qualifiers up. So why don't we just broadly paint the picture of what, like, how do you qualify for Western States? What do those races generally look like? We're not going to go into every, every single one of them and what you have seen those races go through as they become Western States qualifiers. Well, just because you're a Western States qualifying race does not guarantee that you're going to be successful. Some race directors believe that that's their ticket to being successful. And we actually have dropped races recently because they were, they were losing, um, you know, entrance, they were dropping an entrance, but you generally have to run a race, uh, the year one qualifying race, the year before the lottery, um, there's hundred K's in the United States that are, um, they have, what's the, the, you are, UR magazine ranking of, um, surface and terrain. They have to add up to four or something. I don't know the exact stat right now. And then the hundred milers, um, we've tried to start with the 30 largest hundred milers in the United States. Um, and the same with the hundred K's they got to, in addition to being, um, difficult enough, they have to have enough finishers. And the reason we do that is we are collecting the results from all of these races and we vet the qualifiers. Um, but it, it, we also let the, the runners tell us what the best races are. Um, overseas, it's a little bit different, because we're trying to get geographic representation and I, my inbox gets filled um, almost year round with um, runners and race directors requesting that there's a qualifier in their state or country. Um, It's constantly um, a battle with us. You know, I hate to say no tropical John looks at most of these races um, and interacts with the race directors, but to just fix it and say, there'll be no more qualifying races that would, um, you know, that would exclude people in, in, in areas where there isn't a, a qualifier. We do look at this qualifying list every year and we publish the new one in, um, sometime in September before October one for the following year. And, and how no, many but, uh, and, 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 how, how many races are on the qualifying list right now? 
Uh, I think it's like 120. It's a lot. Something. It's a lot. It's, it's kind of what I'm getting at. And you get good ge- geographic, not only domestic geographic distribution, but also good worldwide distribution on that. Yeah. in the worldwide ones, uh, we actually don't get as many. It shouldn't be surprising, but we don't get as many qual- uh, applicants from those races. We get them from the United States races. If we add a hundred miler, uh, in the United States, it will definitely generate, um, a lot of applicants the overseas ones. You know, we're, like we add races in Thailand or Hong Kong and, um, they, they generally don't give us a whole lot of applicants. So they're not as impactful, I guess, on the, on the total applicant count as, uh, U S races. So to become, to, so for a race to become a Western States qualifier, they send you a request and somebody probably tropical John looks at it and says, yeah or nay. Is that it? Yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah. There's no yeah. financial incentive or no financial entanglement that you have with any of these races. None whatsoever. You don't get a dime from them. Not a dime from any, of which them, is no. not, which is not always the case with qualifying races. Uh, I don't know what, what what event you're talking about, but uh, Western States has never done that. Okay. No, well, and I think that's an important, important part to bring out. Like you guys are simply looking at the quality of the races. You're not looking at it as a revenue stream or anything like that. No, 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 no. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about sponsor spots. How many, okay. how many sponsor spots are there? This year, there were 12 sponsor slots, which is a significant decrease. In 2016, it was, it was uh, 22. Um, and we have made a, um, you know, part of, of this growth that we've had um, has, has made us more attractive to sponsors. So we, we have more income from sponsorship. Than, than we had just even last year, um, but fewer spots. And is, um, that a de- is that a decision that Western States is making to reduce the number of sponsor spots, or is that just however many sponsor spots that you can, that you can sell, essentially? No, that's us. We're, we're trying to reduce it. Yeah, we, yeah, we are trying to reduce it. Uh, with the, the brand-new Hoka presenting sponsorship deal, it's definitely changed our, our sponsorship landscape, uh, significantly. And yeah, it, this, this 12 should be going down even, even farther than that in the next few years. How many, how many, uh, requests do you get from either individuals or companies to get a sponsor spot that you have to turn down? Oh, ballpark. You don't have to name names. I just want, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to paint the landscape that you guys are turning business away. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, you know, I don't know, 10 to 20 a year of, of that level. Um, there's a lot more sponsors at the lower levels that, um, that want to get in and, and, and often it's probably in the upper 90% of, of the, the companies who contact me wanting to be sponsors. When I send them the, the sponsor deck, they, we end up not making a deal 
or they don't even reply back when they find out <laughs> how much it's going to be, you know, and then they're, some of them are incredulous. It's like, you're going to get what for, like, yeah, we're going to get that for this. And if you don't want to do it, then sorry. Yeah. Um, Seriously. But yeah. We're, yeah, really. Yeah. I, I think your sponsorships is re- are really reasonable. <laughs> yeah. For the, for, yeah, I, I don't think they're bad either, but but, <laughs> but they just, I don't know what they expect. So, yeah, well, that's enough. I don't story. know what UTMB is, but I know we're nowhere near what UTMB is, yeah. is getting. So. Well, I, I, I'm kind of shocked. I'm, well, one, I, I'm not surprised that you're turning down 10 to 20 companies to get the sponsor entries. Like, that's about what I was expecting. I, I, I did not expect people to like balk at what you guys ask for sponsorship. Cause I've always thought it's really reasonable and fair because of what you guys have built the race into. That's just, well, thanks. I, I agree. <laughs> that, um, I think it's still a pretty good deal. Okay. But, uh, okay. But, yeah. but so we, we, we grapple with, um, you know, some with do, do we have sponsorship income, um, which takes a few spots away or do we completely go, no sponsors and increase the entry fee. And so far we've wanted to keep the entry fee low and it's subsidized that the cost of getting a runner from squad to Auburn is probably around 750 to $850 right now. Um, We could easily go up to that, not have any sponsors we'd have, but it would exclude many people the the price does affect people and i get those emails from um it it tends to be the 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 younger runners who don't have established careers you know there's a lot of older runners that run ultras um and they're successful in their careers but but the new young kids don't necessarily have a lot of money and 410 dollars is a hell of a lot of money for them so raising the entry fee instead of having sponsors, I mean, we're constantly dealing with that tension and trying to resolve that um, in the way that, that reflects the values of the organization. And um, Yeah, some of those younger runners, they even end up selling their buckles back after they yes, complete they the race. <laughs> That's unfortunate, man. That's unfortunate. <laughs> Uh, so th- this actually brings up another good point. Like you guys have mentioned that that you're that you're progressive in a number of uh, of areas. I want to I want to get I want to get a little bit of a better finger on the pulse, or have the listeners get a little bit of a better finger on the pulse on how you guys view Western states' role in being a leader in the ultra marathon space. You want that? <laughs> Yeah, we talk about that a lot, even in the board meetings of the responsibility the race has to the sport. A lot of it has to do with the people that are in the room. When you look at the 15 people that meet for the board, it's a really nice wide cross-section of people that some are pretty new to the sport. Some are been around since, uh, you know, Gordy, or maybe not quite that long, but <laughs> close. But, um, you know, almost everything that, that we have is something like, you know, the buy rule or the pregnancy rule or the transgender stuff that we've been working on, or even drug testing is stuff that we probably batted around in a board meeting for months, if not years. We, we know it's something that we need to address. We're just, it takes us a while to, you know, really find the right level of engagement there and do it right. And when we do it, we want to put it out there and make sure we nail it. Uh, For instance, uh, you know, we have a couple, I don't know how many lawyers we have on the board, three or four. 
and just something like a, a drug policy went, went around and around and around on how we would handle that. And, and uh, you know, I know Diana and some of the other um, gals worked on some of the transgender and the bi stuff and the pregnancy stuff. And it was, you know, months of dialogue, meetings on the phone, talking to people that would be affected by that rule or that opportunity, and then bringing that feedback in and then rotating it back through the board. A, a lot of these subcommittees like those um, handle that pretty well within their own right and then bring a proposal to the board. Most of the time they do that, it's pretty well vetted out. And we just ask a lot of questions and think about how it's going to play out in the sport. But, you know, whether it, I know that uh, from, from the three pillars that we work on in the sport, in the race, you know, when you think about when we think about it at a very high level of Western states, there's putting on a, a you know a super high quality event. There's um, our responsibility to the trail and the history of the trail and 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 maintenance of that and carrying that forward. And the third one is really around uh, medical research. Um, that those are kind of the three things that we talk about most often. They're addressed in every board meeting. Um, somebody comes and does some kind of report or review, but. Uh, we, we find all of those compelling to the sport because uh, we can do that with the people that we have and the infrastructure that's in place and the kind of people that we have available to us to drive it. Uh, we feel not only we can do it, but we have a responsibility to do it as kind of the uh, event in the sport that, that, that has the facilities to do it. So, yeah. And, and after these policies are, are released or published or implemented, um, we often get immediate, uh, hey, we're going to do the exact same thing. Yeah. Um, and for me, I, I, I notice it on the world stage when we have meetings with uh, Ultra Trail World Tour um, or ITRA. Um, I know it's not me personally, but almost every single time they – people in the room want to know what Western States thinks about something. And, you know, it, it, it would be easy for me to think, Oh, they want to know what Craig Thornley thinks about it, but no, it's the, it's the status of the race. I just happen to be the race director right now. Um, so we, we, we definitely feel that and we feel the responsibility and, 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 you know, we're not shying away from it. Well, so I'm going to bring up a challenge question to that aspect. Um, and I, first off, let me say that I completely appreciate a lot of the progressive things that you have done, Craig, you, but both you and Tim have mentioned the pregnancy deferral, the drug testing, which is really progressive. And I echo Craig's sentiment that what you guys do, we immediately see adopted in other aspects of, of ultra running. So going back to my earlier point where it's a North star, the Western States 100 is not only a North star for athletes it's also a north star for other races where people are looking at you to develop and, and design policy and procedures and they'll and they will follow suit but one of the areas that i think that you guys are behind on is the 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 percentage of participants that are female i think that constantly in the race and this is demonstrated in the data year after year your race underrepresents the amount of females that are in the sport as a whole. And once again, being that North star being something that everybody looks at every single year, I don't think that that's a good look for the sport. And I do think that you guys have the keys and the tools and the wherewithal to somewhat fix that. Now I'm not going to advocate for a 50, 50 split in the field. I don't think that that's reasonable. But I certainly don't think that you should be behind the curve 
meaning the percentage of men and the percentage of women that participate in your race, I don't think that that should be misrepresented compared to ultra running as a whole. If, if anything, because of your progressive stance on other things, you should be more progressive in that area compared to ultra running as a whole. So I want to know what you guys think about that. Well, I'm not surprised that you brought this up hey, <laughs> when I, you wrote I, your. I hit you up on this last year during the <laughs> race, man. <laughs> I don't. I don't think we're that far behind. Remember, we have had 50 percent representation in our elite field, both through top 10. Well, through the top 10, it's top 10 men and women. Uh, the top golden ticket races, it's 50. It's 50% women, 50% men, um, and our UTWT spots are 50-50. So some, uh, there were other races that were behind on that where they had 10 women and, or 10 men and five women. So I don't think we were that far behind. Um, but as far as is changing how we get more women in through the lottery, I don't exactly know how we're supposed to do that. Um, the two, uh, Pregnancy deferrals, the the lottery deferral, pregnancy lottery deferral, which allows women who either um, were pregnant during the qualifying period or had a baby during the qualifying period and they, they couldn't get a qualifier. It allows them to skip a lottery or two and not lose their ticket counts. It's not making a dent in this. Um, we've had... I think it was 10 pregnancy lottery deferrals in 2019. And then I think it's 15 right now. We're not disclosing the, the, which of the buys or pregnancy buys right now. Cause we, we were revealing uh, information that personal. That, yeah. The story I said on Saturday is there was a woman last year who told me she was pregnant before she told the man who impregnated her. Um, so we're not revealing those until the whole year, but, but that we thought that would be significant, but it's not make, it's not going to make a dent in 6,600 applicants. If, if there's 20 women on a, on a, on a pregnancy deferral right now, the pregnancy entry deferral, w which is if you're in the race and you, and you get pregnant or you have a, a baby, um, and you can then come back to the race, skipping the lottery, uh, for the next two years. Um, so far we've had one woman take that. So these, these policies, while they are very significant to the women who, who, who take advantage of these policies, um, it's not going to make a dent. It doesn't seem like it. It's I, not I going to make a dent in getting that percentage up. So I, I'm open to, to what you think we should do. Well, let, let me give you the stats, right? So just based off of your lottery, and I get it, you can, you can rebalance the field with the top 10 entrants, the UTWT entrants, the sponsor entrants, and the things like that that you have a little bit of control over. But the things that are purely lottery-driven this year, 17.4% of the lottery women or the lottery winners were women, 17.4%. If we compare that to the number of women finishers at the 100-mile distance for 2019 to date, I just looked this up right before we got on, got on the phone, it's 24%. So you guys are behind the curve in terms of 
the number of women that are getting through your lottery compared to the number of women that are finishing 100-mile races in the U.S. And my point is, is that when you're behind the curve in that area and you're progressive in so many other areas, that's a bad look. And I don't think that that's good for the sport because people look at that and they go, where are all the women on the start line? Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know what to say to that. I mean, we, we still have, you know, the best elite field and maybe that's, I agree only because we can control that more. Um, but do you think it's a bad look? Do you think it's a bad look? Well, I think Craig made the point before, which is, you know, um, it's getting people to apply, right? I mean, we can't force people to to apply to the race. It'd be interesting to know. Um, we can only pull names out of the of the lottery, the people that are in the bucket, right? If if twenty four percent of the hundred mile distance finishers are women, and only seventeen or twenty or fifteen or five percent apply to Western states, um, that's the pool that we have to work with that that apply to the race. I get it. I, I totally get all that. But what I'm asking you guys is you've been progressive in so many other areas. Do you think it's a bad look to have females underrepresented compared to the whole? Well, I, I'm not sure I agree that they're being underrepresented. But I, uh, Why? Statistically, never... they are. I just, I just mentioned it. 17.4% got pulled through your lottery. Twenty-four. Our, our pool is 20, not everybody that's finished a hundred-mile race. Uh, we that finished hundred Ks. Uh, it's whatever's in the applicant pool. I mean, we can try to encourage more women to apply to the race to try to get from seventeen to twenty-four, but that's not really. You well, know, Tim, I was trying to give you. Gonna... I was trying to give you a compare a fair comparison from hundred-mile finishes. So, if you want the whole stats, it's thirty-four percent women finish thirty-four percent of. 2019 finishes are from women compared to 17% for what you do. It's half. So if you and want to broad, it would be, why are those women not applying to the race? Well, I'll, I'll give you my opinion is because they look at the field and they see women up underrepresented there. And they say, that's not for me. And so I back out, I back up to my, my, my kind of original discussion. <laughs> well, I, I guess, so, I mean, we, I don't want to bat this around too much, but I want to know when you, so I presented you the stats as the race director and as a member of the board, are you proud of those stats? And do you think that that needs to be changed? I'm not proud of that stat. No. But I don't know exactly what we're supposed to do to get more people to get more women to apply. I, I, I can't I don't think I agree with you that women look at this and say that race is not for me. I mean, we have so many awesome women that that are examples for for women in the sport. They, they, they look at these awesome women um, and we. I think we promote them equally or, you know, we probably over represent them in our, in our social media posts and our, um, and that's you know, good. Our race program. So I don't, I don't know if women, I don't know if I'd agree with that, Jason, that women look at this and say that race is not for me. Um, 
I mean, how many women are looking at the percentages? How many I are they? Do they know these percentages? Like you just, I, I, I can tell you that I have women come up to me, and for both Western states and Hard Rock in particular, Hard Rock's an even worse worse example of this. And they look at the start line, and they go, "That race is not for me," because I don't see people like me lining up. Hmm. Well, they're they're only <laughs> reinforcing that. Then if you're not <laughs> okay, but it's I mean, at we, least it's, we had that discussion. I remember this. I don't know the board meeting. I don't know how long ago it was, but we discussed, you know, all of the UTWT spots. We talked about the qualifying races, and there have been times where, you know, certain qualifying races, you know, maybe some of the people that were there weren't as fast as some of the other people we could have gotten into the race, but we want those people in because we have to grow that part of the sport along with everything else. Right. I mean, we're not going to, we've tried to represent all of those, uh, both the men and the women, both on the top 10 men and the top 10 women. That's been a tradition at Western States for, I don't know how long, uh, probably since the race began. And then uh, from the golden tickets, the same thing. So and I totally appreciate what you guys have done there as a, as a coach to a lot of the elite women. I absolutely see the way that you promote them in your social media, the way you put them on the exact same pedestal as the men. And I think that is good to bring more women to the sport. My opinion is, is that the, I think that there's just a little bit more that you can do across the representation of the entire field. And your proposal would be to... I okay. You want my proposal? I think that you should. I think I think that you should look at the prior year statistics and base your base your gender balance off of that. So in the prior year, and you can take the hundred mile finishes or the finishes as a whole. Thirty six percent, or what did I say earlier? Thirty six percent, or th sorry, thirty four percent, or twenty four percent, and look at your lottery in your field and find a way to design the field that comes from the lottery and the field that comes from all of the other areas and try to get it close to that, not make it half. That's the big issue is it's so far away from the current representation. And once again, it doesn't have to be 50 50, but you got to inch it close. You got to inch it closer every year. That, that would be my suggestion. No, we can take that to the board and see what they seem batted around and see what they think. Yeah. So are, are you, are you suggesting that our lottery is a, is the reason why this is low initially? I mean, I, obviously, you said that women look at the percentages and say they don't want to, they don't want the race is not for them. But how did we get low uh, to begin with? Yeah. So your lottery, I've got these stats right in front of me. So twenty, so out of all of the lottery applicants, twenty point six of them were women, and out and of the out of the tickets, point four. 17.4 were selected and out of the tickets, it's 16.1%. So for sure, women are underrepresented in applying for in the ticket count in the lottery, for sure. Yeah. Now, we could. Th th there's a big board level discussion that you guys can have and will probably play out on social media as to why that is. But my point is, is that as a progressive race, you should be progressive in this area as well and not regressive. Because the percentage of women that come out of your lottery are from the, it's like the early 2000s. That's regressive, not progressive. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, well, it, I don't know so if I can pick it, one it, stat and then call everything. <laughs> well, no, 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 no. In that, in that, in that, in that area. So if you guys propose that to the board, here's my other request: if you propose that to the board and somehow it makes it through, just call it the Jason Coop rule, and I get all the hate mail. <laughs> That's fair. Okay, but but I, but I do think that the the, the pregnancy policies <clears throat> that we have recently implemented. I think women, I know women, I, I've heard, in fact, I just heard it from a friend from Eugene. He said his wife cried when she found out about our pregnancy deferrals. I think women look at our policies and they say, that is awesome. That is progressive. They don't say what a regressive race that is. No. I, I, I just don't, I, I don't, I don't see that. Okay. I, I agree with you on the policy side of it. I just disagree with it in the way that the, like the, the gender balance in the field shakes out. I totally give you a gazillion credit points for the pregnancy deferral policy and the transgender policy and things like that. It's just the way that the field shakes out. Let, 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 let's move on, though. Can we can we put that to bed for a second? And Dude, move forward? that want to apply to the lottery are happy that <laughs> yeah. those other women are more, hey, to, like, more better chance for them to but, get in. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll leave it at this, <laughs> though. Everybody, everybody can play a part in that and just getting more women to apply a lottery. Mm-hmm. I'll play a part in that. I encourage all my female athletes to apply. So, and, and I think the one thing that happens here, and it happens in this sport, it happens in every sport, is is you have to continue to promote those representations at a low level and let them percolate up. It's 100%. kind of the same thing where they say, "Hey, you know, there's uh, no women as uh, you know head coaches in the NFL." Yeah, because there's no assistant coaches, no offensive coordinators, no defensive coordinators, no college coaches. If you're going to go there, you have to start somewhere. And starting there is at the bottom and have everybody work their way up and, and represent that. And then that's part of it is have kind of that grassroots start of saying, hey, how are we going to we can't just go ahead and you know say, OK, we're going to go put 50 and 50. That probably wouldn't go over very well. No. But I think each one of these, even ultra running, if you look at where the sport was probably 15 or 20 years ago, it was probably even more men. Then there are women and, and those women are starting to come to the fore. You're getting more women apply. It's probably completely different. If we went and looked at the numbers five or 10 years ago, the sport is maturing and changing. hundred percent, hundred percent. And that's all I'm asking is that you like Western States continues to change with It's interesting that you mentioned the grassroots level, because as you guys are well aware of, uh, uh, skip down at the Lake Sonoma 50, is trying to put together a 50-50 field. And he has a women's only half marathon that's associated with that race. That's a golden ticket race for you guys. And I think that I think that things like that at the grassroots level, those are practical solutions to continue to get more women in the sport. Can I, t- can I talk about your way too cool idea? Yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> Are we letting a cat out of the bag yeah. here? Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell Top secret. So Tim had this idea years ago, maybe seven years ago, right when I got down here, that uh, Way Too Cool, which is a popular race here uh, in the American River Drainage, um, we have Saturday is the men's race and Sunday is the women's race. And on Sunday, all the men work at the aid stations and on Saturday, it's the, it's the other way around. Um, <clears throat> that would be awesome to see that happen. And I think it would it would highlight the women's race more instead of it just being, you know, kind of in the, in the middle of yeah. the men's shuffle in, in the men's the field. Um, it hasn't gotten traction with the race director, but <laughs> well, part of it was, you know, we, we, they were trying to put the whole race on in one day and it was oversubscribed, right? I mean, it basically run off its permit and it couldn't start any more people. 
And it's like, well, it's such a popular race and everybody wants to do the event, then just split it up. You can set, send the dudes out on one day and the, and the ladies on the next and, and alternate. I don't know if there's ever been a, a 50K race that's been only women, a women's only 50K race in the U.S. It'd be kind of cool. Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, if you look at like uh, there's some half marathons out there that are women's only half marathons that are enormously popular. And, and that's been really good for the sport of running. So things like that. I can, I completely encourage once again, it makes it more accessible for women to get in anything like that. I think is, 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 is good. Yeah. I think there was, she rocks the trail mm -hmm. that uh, was a women's only race 50 mm -hmm. K and it didn't, it wasn't successful, but with cool, there's already a big following, a big field. Yeah. I think it could actually work. Yeah. So Julie, if you're listening now, we've told the whole world, <laughs> how many people listen to you? How many people listen to you, Jason? Oh man, dude, we've had a, like every episode's getting a couple thousand downloads right now. And just the first Good. couple. Right. Of them. Yeah. So I'm pretty, I'm pretty happy with it. Maybe this one will like break the internet though, because <laughs> probably not. Okay. But I want to know are 24% of them women. Uh, well, I could, I wonder if I could give me the numbers, that. man. Come yeah, on. Man. You I'll got try, the numbers. I'll try to pull that stat just for you, Tom. I'll try to pull that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let, let's let's talk about something uh less less polarized and, <laughs> and 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 probably less interesting on the surface but something that's attracted a lot of attention and this has to do with math. That's why it's less polarized. <laughs> but it still attracts a lot of attention. So there there is a fair amount of criticism with the current lottery setup, this current weighted lottery setup that gives tickets based on 2 to the n minus 1 based on the years that you've applied that the first two or three years that you're in the lottery, you have no shot. So you might as well throw your name in the hat way before you're actually ready for the race. And that floods the lottery applicant field with people who are, aren't ready. It's too early for them. And then it becomes an unsustainable problem because everybody's trying to enter at too early of a point in their ultra running career because of this math problem. I want you guys well, for, to address that. Yeah. First off, I mean, how is this manifesting itself? You would think that if this was a problem, if people are entering the race when they're not prepared, then our finishing rate would go down. We had the highest finishing percentage of all years where we didn't have just one runner, which was 1974 and 1976, Gordy and Cowman. All the other years, we had the highest finishing percentage last year. So how does this manifest itself? I, I, did, I, don't, I don't understand the premise of that. When people run a qualifier, we have we have deemed them prepared to run Western States. That's why we have the qualifier. They've run a qualifier. They're prepared. I don't understand the premise of this. Well, I just like to take the, the decrease in DNF rate. I like to take credit for that as a coach. So I don't know whether hey. qualifiers <laughs> can take credit for it or not. You've heard me say that at the medical <laughs> yeah, conference too. I, I just, I just, the, the, I, the, I don't, that doesn't get any traction with me. Yeah, there's a million reasons that. why the finishing rate is continuing to go be, be better anyway, but, even particularly. But I guess but when, okay, out, outside, when people get when people get a spot on the line, when they get in, they train and they run. And if they aren't ready, then they can withdraw, and someone on the wait list will get in who's ready. I mean, I just, just this is just not a problem. But do you think? Outside, outside of the readiness piece of it, do you think the market influx in the number of people that are applying to the Western States 100 has anything to do with the weighted lottery system? 
Uh, if if it if if it does, I don't think it's that significant. These people want to run Western states, right? So they they put their name in to run Western states. Is it forcing them to put their name in? I I don't think it's forcing them. If they don't want to run it, then don't don't enter. If I mean it's it's hard to run a qualifier year in and year out. The lottery definitely rewards a, the type of runner that can run qualifiers year in and year out. If you're not that type of runner, you're going to look at this lottery system and you're going to find flaws in it. And that's generally the the, the voice that um, you're describing here is it, it supports the type of runner who is not a year after year qualifier getter. Well, and, 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 almost, and almost all of the, the criticisms we get or the suggestions we get for the lottery, they are selfish suggestions. <laughs> they look at, well, this lottery is flawed because it doesn't favor me. So let's change it so that it favors me so that I can get in <laughs> sooner. I mean, that that's what I get all the time. It, it's, it's, it's always self-serving. You may be different, Jason. If you gave me something, I would I would trust that you would give me something that would that would make the lottery better. <laughs> well, but generally, it's self-serving. For for what it's worth, Craig, I'm with you on this one. We might disagree <laughs> on the women's side. That should not be that should not be your standard of approval, by the way. What I think. <laughs> but, <laughs> so I, let me let me see if I can rephrase that premise. What you're saying is people are applying to the race so they can get their tickets going, even though they're not. Yeah. interested or qualified in starting that year. hundred percent. And I can tell you once again, going back to my anecdotal story with my training partner, when he got in with one ticket, he was like, holy shit, I didn't expect to get in the first year. I didn't expect to get in the first year. And he was perfectly ready. He did great. Same thing with the second year he got in on one ticket. I didn't expect to get in and he did better the second year. But Craig, yeah, I think that's a pretty common theme only, but if you did qualify and put in for the lottery, then you're ready. Yeah. And there's so much information out there now to get you prepared. And there's so many coaches uh, you can, you can get prepared. And if you ran a qualifier, then you obviously have the ability to run at least a hundred K and probably ran a hundred. That's one of the reasons why we uh, in a way strengthen some of the qualifying yeah. stuff from 50 miles to hundred K or finish a hundred miler. I mean, you go down the list of stuff, you know, better knowledge, better equipment, better nutrition, better coaching, uh, better information about the course, being the ability to run the course and have it be marked. You know, when I started running the race, man, if you didn't have somebody that lived in Auburn and knew the course, you you would have ended up get eaten by wild wolves out there because you know where you were going, right? I mean, now there's just so much more information available. And the runner, even in their very first year that applies and gets in, even though they didn't hope to, has so much more information to work with. Their chances of being successful are dramatically improved from somebody that was involved in the sport 15, 20 years ago. Well, Craig knows this because he's seen the talk that I've done, you know, a couple of years in a row at the medical conference. I, I attribute a lot, not entirely, but certainly a lot of the decrease in DNFs, the increase in success rates, specifically at Western States, to the research that you guys have done there. Because I can tell you in my own coaching practice, I've used that I, I've used that a, an enormous amount to get 
athletes prepared for races. And I've been coaching for long enough to where I went from hardly any, any information that we had on ultra marathon runners from a research perspective to now we have a, a, what I would call a good, a decent amount of information that we can draw of in the literature. And you guys were a catalyst for a lot of that. So I give you a lot of credit. I think there's still a lot more to come too. I think we're just for sure. really, for really sure. starting, for sure. you know, we're keep just kind of at the infancy of understanding how we all do this. Yeah. Keep doing it. Okay. So I, I I'm, I'm with you on this. I did want to give you a chance to address that criticism because it is a big piece of it that is out there. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> is there anything else you want to say on that since we're on a roll no, with the green? That's enough. That's <laughs> okay. enough on that one. Okay. Well, it is funny how Craig <laughs> says that only because yeah, we get a lot of, you know, sug- healthy suggestions on how things could be better. There, there's always little things that people can provide and, and we look at them for sure. But, but in, in the general entire scheme of things, when you look at it at a high level, one thing that's nice about the slider, people do want, people do understand it. They understand how they get in, what it does. And if they like it, great. If they don't, you know, that's the way it is too. Now we, will we change it? Who knows? Um, like I say, we review it pretty often just to make sure we're trying to do the best we can. What's the dumbest? Everyone can be happy what's the dumbest idea you've ever gotten craig like what's the stupidest idea to fix the lottery that you've ever heard where you just look at it and go oh my god we can never consider you don't have to name names i just want to hear the idea well (laughs) i think without any waiting everybody has the same chance of getting in every single uh year that they put in i think that's an absolutely ridiculous idea wow Oh, that's the dumbest one for for the dumbest one. That's actually not not too far away. I I was expecting something totally different. Yes. Pick everybody from California or something like that. Okay. Oh, well, those aren't even serious, right? I mean, yeah, you get the ones that are, that are not serious. And trust me, we hear it from the locals. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. So uh, yeah, when, um, when I hear it from international folks that, yeah, there's too many local runners selected. And then I hear it from the locals. Oh, there's too many international runners. We know we're, we know we're, we're probably somewhere in the right spot. If we've, if we've got both extremes thinking that the other side has an advantage. Yeah. Um, So there's always that kind of, that, that kind of pressure to, Oh, you need to make it more favorable for, for this user group than the other user group. Okay. Next thing, I think it's probably going to be the last thing that that that, that we discuss. Um, one of the things that I've always appreciated about the way that Western states has managed the race, and in particular the entrants that 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 get into Western states, is you guys do it with absolute, utter, complete transparency. Everybody knows where every single applicant and every single entrant to the Western States 100 comes from. You guys make that obvious on your website. And that's not always the case. A lot of times these things are behind, you know, the, you know, the proverbial curtain that nobody gets to peel back except for the race management. And, and that's a deliberate decision that you guys have made to put that transparency out there. And, what I want to know is, is why, why, why have you chosen to be that like utterly transparent in this process? Well, I used to be a lottery applicant and <laughs> I did not like, uh, the fact that mm, it wasn't revealed how people got in. And I, and I really didn't like the appearance of the 50, 60, 70 people who showed up on the entrance list after the lottery, like in the, this week and the next week. And I, as a, as a participant, I absolutely hated that. 
And when I got the job, I, I, I pushed really hard and, and, um, you know, the board went along and there are times when, um, it's kind of opened up us for criticism. My predecessor said, Oh, don't do this, Greg. Don't, don't put how people got in the race. Cause it's just going to open you up. Uh, for criticism. And I said, well, if we're proud of how everybody got in the race, then put it out there. If, if, if we're hiding something, um, then yeah, maybe you don't want to reveal it. So it, it, it works both to uh, let everybody who's in the lottery or everybody in, who's looking at it know, but it also holds us accountable. There's no, you know, there's, we are totally on the up and up. There's, there's no secret deals and um, my friends don't get in the race. So, um, so yeah, I, I, that's where it really came from. And, and the board has, um, has embraced it. And I think now we're, we're probably the, the gold standard on transparency. Is that fair enough? Yeah. So let me, let me, um, jump on, uh, Craig's note there. Uh, is that uh, <laughs> said not to pump his tires, but when Craig came in, uh, we did try to make all that stuff as transparent as possible because one, we, we, we hope we're doing the right thing. And if not, then people will let us know and we can adjust accordingly. Like, like you mentioned earlier in the, in the podcast, you know, we've, our sponsor slots have gone down. That's a concerted effort to try to limit that so we can get more non-sponsor related runners into the race. It's a few slots, all that matters over time. So, um, if we're proud of what we do as far as the race and who we put at the start line, then we should be able to back that up. And, you know, we'll take the feedback. That's part of the process of being on the board is, is taking the feedback from people and, and adjusting accordingly as, as we can. Um, and, and we continue to do that. Yeah. And the, it's interesting when I talk to race directors about that transparency piece, the thing that they come back with is they don't want people to feel bad. Like the people that they're giving spots to, and they're, they're hiding behind the curtain as to how they actually got in the race. They don't want them to feel that bad. And I just don't buy that. I think that's such a bullshit excuse. I don't disagree with you, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We could agree on another thing. There we go. We'll end on two, two points of agreement. Yeah. Oh, there we go. <laughs> All right. Um, hey, let's wrap it up, you guys. I First off, I really appreciate you guys coming on. Something that you don't have to do, but uh, pinging off your dialogue of transparency, just the fact that, Craig, I can reach out to you on a Tuesday and we can get this going on a Friday and have so much enthusiasm uh, with you and with Tim on the board. I think that that demonstrates the the credibility in that in, in that transparency statement. Just brilliant. Just brilliantly. Brilliantly. That's what I wanted to say. Um let me also say that this is a, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that this is a good problem to have. The fact that we have so many enthusiastic eyeballs on one race in particular that generates a lot of discussion and that discussion always moves things forward. Um, but also you guys have done such a great job at putting together your elite fields and making sure that kind of the world is watching when that race unfolds. That's all good for the sport and the fact that it has generated so much interest and so much enthusiastic interest interest. I always view as somebody who's in the space as well as a, as a really good problem to have. So 
those types of things are luxury problems, right? You know, it would be, it would be another thing if you guys were beating down the door trying to get people to actually enter the race. <laughs> and, 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 yeah. and, and, and obviously you guys don't have that. So keep doing what you're doing. The, the whole ultra running world, although we might have our gripes about how this works or how that works. And if, you know, my favorite flavor of tortilla chip is served at the Michigan bluff aid station or whatever <laughs> other, whatever the gripe that whatever other small gripe that we have in general, I, I think you guys handle yourselves and you do a fantastic job representing the sport of ultra running and moving things forward in the sport. And it's something that all, all obviously all athletes aspire to get into, but it's all also something that all races aspire to be as well. Well, thanks, Jason. Um, yeah, it um, it is a good problem to have. And for me, it's often a challenge when post lottery, when I, I or even during the lottery, um, leading up to the lottery, where I hear a lot of criticism. Um, it's it's often challenging for me to remember that that's a pretty small percentage of the folks out there. Um, who are paying attention to what we're doing, and uh, and I appreciate you you saying what you did. That um, that's good to hear. Thank yeah. you, Tim. Any final remarks? No, it's great. I, I'm anxious actually to see the feedback from the podcast when you post it out, so we get some ideas from some other folks. Right? I mean, it, that's we 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 welcome the feedback only because you know we have a responsibility to hear it with the race and the sport and. You know, again, we're, we're trying to continually reevaluate how we're doing things and try to stay right at the at the top of the, the list and the top of uh, the sport as far as how it's done and and, and that. So, well, it should as, be fun. as I was telling you guys on the onset, I record the intro and outro after the fact. So I always get the last word. That's what I really, that's why I really do that. And I, I'll include, I'll include you guys' personal email address, cell phone number and addresses <laughs> in the outro, just so people can, you know, hit you up and tell you what they really think. Unload a wagon. Oh, uh, everybody yeah. can find my email address. Yeah. That's not a they problem. Don't find us. <laughs> they get me. Uh, but I, yeah, I was excited to hear that you were starting this podcast. I, I listened to the, to the episode zero with Billy and um yeah already you're 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 definitely meant for this you're a pro i'll hop on a podcast with you at any time jason oh i appreciate that. I, I i don't mind the 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 difficult questions i just don't want to get hammered with nothing but those kinds of questions so I, <laughs> you had a, a good mix today and um yeah i, I wish well, you the best of luck i told i told you i was going to be critical yet fair yeah, and I think you that, were. that that came out. So anyway, <laughs> yeah. well, I, I really appreciate what you guys do, like I said. And uh, I think everybody looks forward to the 2020 Western States. We got a few other spots to fill with the golden ticket races. And we will see everybody in Squaw. All right. We hope to see you there. All right, Jason. Thanks, guys. Take care. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Did they make a good case for the lottery? If you didn't get into the race and you were upset, are you still upset? Or do you kind of get where they're coming from now? Well, I, I got to be honest, at the end of the day, while there's a lot of things that you know frustrate me as a coach and as a kind of steward of the sport, so to speak, uh, the Western States 100 is, is faced with this improbable supply-demand proposition. There's just a lot of people that want to run the race and they only have a fixed amount of spots. 
And you can push on the demand side of that however which way you want to. You can reduce or you can uh, try to tighten up the qualifying standards. You can even manipulate the facets of the lottery where people are looking at it as a multi-year proposition versus a single year, you know, straight up, everybody gets one ticket uh, uh, proposition. But I got to be honest with you, I don't think that that is really going to make a dent on the demand side of this issue, there's still going to be thousands and thousands and thousands of people that want to run Western states for the hundreds of spots. And as long as that supply, demand, and equity exists, we're going to have a lot of people disappointed. And I think that one of the things that kind of comes out from all of this is we just have to talk about what we value as a community and what's fair and what's not fair. And from my personal perspective, I think this is a fair system. It rewards the aspects of longevity and stick to and even a little bit of grit to survive the lottery. And if anything, ultra running embodies all of those qualities and people. So not only do I think it's a fair lottery, I think it's one that is representative of the culture of ultra running. But I realize that not everybody's going to agree. So if you disagree, you can hit Craig and Tim up. They made it open. They listened to feedback. You can hit me up on social media. I'll take that criticism if you disagree with me. Have no problem with that because the dialogue here is important because we do want ultra running to be a healthy sport uh, for years and years and years to come. And when you do have a lot of this disappointment, we don't want that to kind of come in the way of, of the progress that is to come in the sport. So I hope you guys have fun uh, listening to the podcast. I hope it illuminated some of the aspects of the lottery that maybe you didn't know before. Um, this podcast is really nothing without you, the runners. You know, I don't take a dime from anybody. I don't have advertisers or sponsors or anything like that, and I'm not looking for anything. So if you want to support the podcast, you want to support me talking about topics like this, go ahead, give it a five-star rating on iTunes. And if you hate it, send me some hate mail. I don't mind, I don't mind that at all. Uh, share it with your running partners. Share it with your friends. And continue to listen to the Coopcast. I always appreciate your listenership. Uh, big thanks to Craig and Tim for coming on the show. That was not easy for them, but I just really appreciate their openness, honesty, and just really the frank pragmatism that they exhibit when they're talking about things like this, that they, 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 know, they know they're an impossible situation. They're not going to please everybody. Thank you guys for doing what you do. And thank you guys for keeping Western States as a North Star for the ultra running community as a whole. Once again, thank you guys to the listeners. And I will see you out on the trails.